Welcome to the Better Buildings podcast, Canada's conversation about opportunities for improvement in the built environment. So I'm here today with Melissa Furukawa of Peel Passive House, and uh, she's going to talk to us about retrofitting large buildings to the Passive House standard. Welcome to the podcast today. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. So for our audience, some of them will know and some won't, but what is the Passive House standard and how does it work? So the Passive House standard is a voluntary third-party energy efficiency standard for buildings. It's not prescriptive like the building code, ASHRAE, or LEED, where you have to implement certain measures or show improvements over a baseline. Passive House is a performance-based standard, so you have to show through energy modeling um, that you're meeting the energy targets. And we use a scientifically validated energy modeling program called Passive House Planning Package, or the PFP. And there's also other aspects um, around Passive House certification, such as strict testing protocols for windows and ventilation units. Um, So PHI also, but the Passive House Institute also will certify window frames and uh, ventilation units like HRVs or ERVs. And um, through the certification process, uh, the construction details are also verified by a third party, and you have to also submit a photo catalog of the details and assemblies as constructed. Um, and then the final two things are there's a blower door test to um, prove the air tightness of the building that's done, and also ventilation uh, system commissioning. And just to explain in a little bit further detail, what is that level of performance that you have to achieve to call it a passive house building? So there are a few different targets that you have to meet. One of them is the space heating demand, which is 15 kilowatt hours per meter squared. So meter squared area, floor area per year. Um, There's also a target for cooling, which depends on your climate. Then there's also a target for the overall energy use of the building. So that's including heating, cooling, domestic hot water, appliances and lighting. There's two ways to measure it. Um, Passive House looks at PR, the primary energy renewable. So kind of imagining that we're going to get to a place where we have, you know, all renewable energy um, on our grid. And the limit for that is 60 kilowatt hours per meter square per year. And there's still a PE, primary energy target, which kind of you, in that scenario, you can still use, for example, natural gas which is 120 kilowatt hours per meter square per year. And then the other important measure um, tied to the air tightness testing is a target of 0.6 air changes per hour at 50 pascals. And so the idea is to get a building like kind of hammer down its energy use to a point where it can be much more self-sufficient? Yeah, and the whole, the the way Passive House was designed is um, that you could essentially heat your building through supply air heating. How did you get into this line of work? I did my master's at uh, Ryerson University um, in building science. And after that, I got involved in energy modeling and I was doing energy modeling for buildings, a lot of code built buildings, like buildings just, you know, trying to meet the minimum standard. And I really wanted to work on more high performance um, buildings. And I had been introduced to Passive House during my master's and I really saw that there was a good fit between Passive House and their targets and the kinds of projects that I wanted to work on. So I got my certified Passive House designer accreditation and I started working for Peel Passive House Consulting. And now um, we solely, we only work on Passive House projects. 
Um, and since then, I've also gotten my accredited Passive House Certifier accreditation. I've also been kind of not only just working on buildings, but also now we uh, are starting to work with manufacturers, window manufacturers to help them improve their window frame design and get them certified. So would that be one of the main areas that you would focus your efforts on? If you were trying to get a project to achieve the standard, where do you kind of start? Where do you really focus on? Yeah, so as as a certifier, we strongly uh, recommend that people get a certifier on board early in the project. They are really an invaluable asset to the team and can really help with those early stage design decisions, you know, on things that you may not think would affect passive house certification. And, you know, oftentimes it's much more easier to make a design stage early on when it's just on a piece of paper rather than during construction. Too often we have projects coming to us either mid-construction or even post-construction wanting to go through the certification process. And if something comes up that's quite not quite aligned with the with the requirements for passive house and they have to retrofit, it becomes very difficult and costly. Um, so that's kind of one of the main things. And then the second thing I would say is uh, focus on training. So for the design team, but also the construction team, we really recommend uh, that people go through some form of passive house training. Our experience has been that it really helps and uh, sets people up to succeed in the project. And it's just really giving people that why behind what they're doing um, so that they can understand, you know, why you're making certain recommendations, why you're trying to get them to, you know, build a certain way. Yeah, I think that understanding is is key. And does that training, do you see it getting extended to a lot of different types of professionals? Our audience are consulting engineers. Um, obviously, you know, there would be architects, there would be builders. Do they all kind of have a, a, a role to play in, in being trained? Like, is it advantageous for all of them across the chain? Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, so especially so on the design side, um, I mean, actually, we have an online training platform now and we offer the certified passive house designer slash consultant training. So that is really for, you know, the consultant who's going to be really driving the passive house aspects of the project. So that could be the architect, but it also could be uh, the mechanical engineer or just a third party consultant. And then also, yeah, on the tradesperson side, there is also a stream for getting your certified passive house tradesperson accreditation. And yeah, we really recommend, especially the project manager, the construction manager, but even you know different levels of the trade to also be involved in that training. It's really a whole um, a whole building approach, and it really requires that the whole team kind of be knowledgeable and be on board. Yeah, I'm sure this would play into the question of turning a design into reality. How do you ensure a design's constructability? Do you kind of have to get all those parties involved? Yeah, and we really um, like to get the construction manager involved early on in the design and just to make sure that everything is constructible. Also, for larger projects, um, we really recommend you do a mock-up. This can allow for the construction team to be familiar with the process and the sequencing, um, but it also can be used to identify any issues that may come up uh, during construction. And then we can collaboratively with the design team and the construction team come up with a solution. 
And I can see there being, you know, an optimal sort of situation where you're creating a new building from scratch and you can basically, if you, you know, if, if, if money was no object, you could get everything you needed. But how do you apply the standard when you're retrofitting an older existing building uh, in a Canadian market? Yeah, so that that can be challenging. The Passive House Institute has recognized that retrofitting a building is, is more challenging um, than starting from scratch. Um, you may have you know, existing orientation that might not be optimal in terms of solar heat gains. You may have structural elements that create thermal bridging that you can't really get around. Um, so for these types, it, it might be more difficult to make the building completely airtight. Um, so th for these reasons, they've come up with another certification, which is called Enerfit. So that's for retrofit um, projects. And it just has more relaxed uh, targets in terms of the space heating demand, the air tightness requirement, and the overall uh, energy demand. And so what kind of methods do you see taken in those examples? If somebody's doing an enterfit retrofit uh, to a large building, you know, what are they able to do in terms of modifications to that building that can get it towards that level of standard? Yeah, so I mean, I can speak to the project, uh, one of the projects that we're working on, which is a 20-story tower retrofit. Um, in Windsor, it's about 300 units. Um, so in that project, we're taking this phased approach. So you don't have to do everything all at once. I mean, it may be challenging from uh, financing the project or for whatever reason. So we've taken this phased approach. And so the first phase was doing the mechanical systems. So we redid the, the heating and cooling of the building and also put in fresh air ventilation through uh, an ERV, an energy recovery ventilator. And then the next phase of the project will be doing the envelope. So we're gonna go with an EAF system so that we can have kind of continuous insulation on the outside, along with upgrading the windows to Passive House windows, Passive House certified windows. And what types of these buildings have you, find can be, have you found can be retrofitted successfully to the uh, Enerfit standard? Yeah, I mean, really any type of building. Um, so far, you know, we're working on that uh, tower retrofit. There's a, a bunch of different, uh, sorry, there's a few other tower retrofit uh, projects happening right now. Um, I know of at least another one happening in, in Hamilton. Um, and then we also worked on an affordable housing kind of mixed use building in Hamilton that was also retrofitted to the Enderfit standard. And then, yeah, as a certifier, we've been involved in a few different single family home uh, retrofit projects as well. So do you find that all the energy efficiency goals of the Enerfit standard are achievable? Yes. Um, often in Passive House, uh, there, we don't have like actual monitor data. It's not a requirement. Although the Passive House Institute has done various studies and have shown the kind of longevity and um, ability for these different buildings to meet the targets. That being said, we do have some modeling data from the affordable housing project that we worked on in Hamilton. So it showed 52% energy savings and 70% greenhouse gas emission savings compared to an NECB 2015 reference building. So basically like a code built building. So huge energy, energy and carbon savings there. And then this is not a retrofit project, but we also worked on the uh, first certified Passive House car dealership. It's in Red Deer, Alberta. It's a Subaru uh, car dealership. And they have a few different car dealerships. And so 
they were able to collect uh, utility data and they sh we they were able to show 60 to 64% savings in the annual utility costs compared to other kind of conventional dealerships. So when you don't have that modeling data, then how does how does certification come about? I know that one of the um, winners of our Canadian Consulting Engineering Awards last year was um, building NX at, at Humber College, a very extensive retrofit of an mm. existing, very drafty building. And I know that there were some um, levels of certification, certification it was able to meet, but uh, I believe um, some were still a ways off in terms of achieving. So, you know, is there that chance once the building is, is completed and built, uh, is there a requirement to then follow that data? And if not, how do you determine uh, if it's okay to certify it? So yeah, you do have to do an energy model and show kind of that your design is meeting the energy targets. And then after construction, you have to kind of verify that um, it was constructed as designed. And that's where all this photo documentation the floor door testing, the ventilation commissioning comes into play. And okay. I should also mention that there are kind of, there's two routes for the NFIT standards. So there's the energy demand method, which is similar to the passive house standard where it's very much performance-based. And then there's also a component method. Um, so in the component method, you have to meet certain minimum requirements of thermal performance for different components of the building. So for example, um, the opaque envelope, like the walls, roof, floors have to meet a minimum R value or maximum U value. Um, also the windows have to have a certain thermal performance and then the ventilation units have to have a certain uh, efficiency. And, and that component method varies depending on your climate zone. Okay, but all that information is gatherable based on the pieces of the puzzle that are being used as opposed to necessarily tracking the performance of that building once it's complete? Yeah, exactly. So you have to meet uh, for each component a certain performance rather than having a whole building um, kind of energy model. But the, the beauty of the performance-based standard is if, for example, you... I don't know, can't add insulation in a certain area, that's okay. Like you can make up for it somewhere else as long as there's no moisture issues. And so it really, if, if for example, you, there's a beautiful view in the North and you really want to have, you know, a bunch of windows on the North, you, you can do that and you may just have to compromise somewhere else. So it really allows you to design the building based on um, the projects like requirements and what they, what they want to achieve. You mentioned different climate regions. Do you find that the passive house standard has been more, let's say, sort of, you know, enthusiastically adopted in certain climate regions where it feels like it's more um, uh, perhaps, you know, cost efficient to do than in others? Hmm. Um, yeah, great question. I mean, I don't know. It might be a, a combination of factors, but for example, I mean, we're in Toronto here. Um, the passive house movement is, is, is coming like there's more and more projects in this kind of on southern Ontario but there's definitely much more adoption in Vancouver and it could be because of their you know slightly more temperate climate um, but also the city of Vancouver has really adapted and like really encouraged people to do passive so I think it's a it might be a combination of of certain things. 
I've also heard about there being interest in regions uh, like eastern Canada, east coast of Canada, where uh, utilities are, are very expensive uh, or or limited in terms of you know things like you can't necessarily get natural gas, so a lot of homes are still burning oil. Do you sort of see a bit of an uptick of interest in those areas? Yeah, I mean we don't have too many projects out east, but definitely there is within Passive House a push towards all electric buildings. And when you reduce your spacing demand and space cooling demand to that level, you you really don't require a lot of, you know, you don't require a huge furnace, for example, and you can get away with smaller units that use very little amounts of energy. So I could, I could see that um, being a, a good reason for uh, moving towards that in those regions. Yeah, there's certainly a big buzzword of electrification. Do you kind of see mm-hmm. passive house going hand in hand with that? Yeah, I mean, so I, I mentioned this whole PER, primary energy renewable versus PE, primary energy, and um, the PER route really um, pushes towards all electrification um, with the idea that, you know, eventually over time, our grid will come become more and more clean and more and more renewable energy, which is, you know, always tied with electricity, will be a reality in our future. Um, so I think you you can still certify your building using the PE. And so you can still, you know, you can still use natural gas uh, boilers for domestic hot water. Um, but I think we're eventually over time, I think that will be phased out. And these days when, in a lot of cases, passive house projects are a little bit sort of still new, um, sometimes for even demonstration purposes, mm-hmm. you know, it may not be as much of an issue, but over the long run, do you think you're going to be able to uh, control costs adequately that clients will easily see, yes, there's going to be a payoff if I pay this amount up front to, to do this retrofit uh, fairly extensively uh, to an old kind of, you know, leaky building, uh, this will provide a return on investment to me in lower utility bills in the long run? Yeah, I definitely think so, especially as we see the market growing here in Canada, more and more uh, companies and manufacturers are, you know, developing passive house components like window frames and ventilation units. Um, So as that increases here, we'll see kind of lower costs. But, you know, that being said, we also work on affordable housing projects, um, so it can be done in a cost effective way. For example, the the Parkdale Landing project, the retrofit project I spoke about in Hamilton, they uh, calculated that the all of the passive house el- elements caused a resulted in a four percent incremental cost, which, given the amount of energy that they were saving, equated to a simple payback of twenty three years. And part of that was, you know, that there was no incremental cost to the heating or cooling systems because they had such low demands, they could go with really simple, small systems, and there was no incremental cost to lighting or the domestic hot water systems either. So it really all has to do with with the design. There's a lot of different elements that come in with, you know, how the cost of your project. Obviously, you're going to be spending more on things like windows, uh, more insulation. But if you can kind of design a, a simpler building, there can be... Um, and also with a simplified um, HVAC system, then there could be other cost savings and other parts of the project. How do you foresee the passive house standard playing out in the effort to bring Canada's existing building stock up to net zero performance um, you know, by a certain deadline? 
I think as as Canada moves towards net zero buildings, we'll see um, the passive house movement grow. Um, you know, we're already seeing that with with new builds, with the Toronto Green Standard and the BC Step Code, Tier Four and the Toronto Green Standard and Step Four and the BC Step Code is essentially passive house targets. So it's it's definitely like it creates a good basis for meeting near set, uh, net zero energy because you know you reduce your energy demand to such a low level that then it's quite easy to just add renewable energy to make it net zero and you know passive house has like proven results that if you use those design principles and the tools that you you will meet those requirements um, and then also over over time it's also shown its longevity uh, the first passive house, I think it's over 25 years now, has shown the same low energy consumption that it was designed to. Given that there are companies like yours and there are certain types of projects that you've been working on and Canada has these overall targets, if I'm a consulting engineer coming into passive house now, where are my efforts most needed, would you say? It's a, yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, we uh, we just did like an alumni webinar actually with like people who've done our training and like, what are they doing now? And it's really diverse. I mean, you know, you can start your own, you know, passive house company and start doing consulting or certification. Um, another person like works for an architecture firm. Another person uh, works for a construction company. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done, like both on site, in the design. And we really need like great people, knowledgeable people uh, on all fronts because it, it really does it's a process. It's like an integrated design process that involves the whole team. But really, like I think right now, like education is a is a big thing. Just getting people to know about Passive House and to see that it's a viable it's a viable solution and it doesn't have to break the bank. I think now we have you know more and more uh, example projects, but as that builds, people will kind of see the real benefits of Passive House. Because I guess, and also, I guess I haven't talked about this yet, but I mean, Passive House is really focused on energy, but comfort is a huge part of it as well. Um, So having a really comfortable indoor environment with good indoor air quality, these are the things that we also need to highlight for Passive House in order to get clients on board. Let's say that everybody in the um, uh, on the client side was aware of Passive House, was enthusiastic for it. Uh, then, where would you sort of see there being almost like a a labor shortage? Where would you see the, say that engineers need to sign on for what types of buildings? Would it be you know institutional, uh, commercial, industrial? What kind of uh, areas, types of buildings are you going to sort of see as the next frontier? Honestly, I think all types of buildings. I yeah. mean, we really, uh, if we're really going to curb climate change and and have an impact, um, we really need to be concerned about, I mean, new buildings, you know, it breaks my heart to see like these condos going up in Toronto that are just like, you know, terrible thermal performance. Um, but also we have so much existing building stock that needs to be retrofitted as well. Um, I mean, so I guess given that there's like a huge stock of like existing buildings, maybe that is a good area to, to concentrate on. Yeah. yeah. Do you sort of see across the board existing building stock, all of it, you know, almost no matter when it was built, there's room for improvement? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I mean, I think, you know, our building code has kind of slowly improved over time, but um, there's a huge difference between, 
you know, an existing building and a passive house building and a lot of, a lot of um, opportunity there for improvement of energy performance, but also just overall comfort. I know I wish I could retrofit my house to be a, a passive house. <laughs> Are those, you know, those types of um, questions being asked of uh, the National Building Code, are we going to see changes uh, in the near future to the code that will address some of those issues? Yeah, I think I think we are we are seeing the code kind of move in that direction. I'll bet like a slower pace. And I think you know, passive house kind of sets the standard for like actually like we should be here now. Like if we want to have impact, we need to be ad- We need to be moving a lot quicker than, than we actually are. That's great. So what are you kind of sort of looking forward to in the near future then in terms of the progress of the uh, the adoption of the standard? Yeah, I'm just excited to see it being more widely adopted. I mean, I see, you know, in other countries, like they have whole like neighborhoods or communities that are passive house. You know, they have there's certain cities that have like mandates that like all new buildings are like passive house level. So I'm really excited to to see Passive House really grow here in Canada and um, ideally, you know, become the minimum kind of performance that's acceptable by code. Thanks so much, Melissa. I appreciate that. It gives us a bit of a, a vision of uh, where to uh, face, you know, in the future and where to put efforts. Thank you, Peter.